A while ago, there was an explosion, at least in my feed of all the different things I look at, of folks talking about the importance of having a lot of good mental models to help you make better decisions. Many folks sort of referred to a talk by Charlie Munger at the USC, uh, University of Southern California Business School in 1994. You know, Munger is the other old white guy who worked with Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway, making huge amounts of high payoff investments. Munger said that their lattice work of mental models is one of their core competitive advantages. He said 80 or 90 important models will carry about 90% of the freight in making you a worldly wise person. And I think what he means by worldly wise is able to make a lot of money by making good decisions. So essentially he's saying you need to have a lot of good mental models to be good at making decisions and prioritizing and things. And since making good decisions and prioritizing is what we product managers need to do, I think it's worth considering Munger's point. That being said, what is a mental model? Well, it's any concept that helps explain, analyze, or navigate the world, which is a pretty general description, and that means it kind of could be almost anything. But I'd also add specifically that it helps you make better decisions or that guides you on how to take better actions. Mental models are like tools in a toolbox. If you only have a few tools, you can only solve a few kinds of problems. It's like the famous saying, to the man with only a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. If you have a full toolbox, you can have a lot more flexibility and subtlety about how you can go after problems. Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to the Secrets of Product Management podcast, episode number 152. This podcast is for product managers, product marketers, leaders, anyone who wants to make a difference in the world by creating great products and taking them to market. This episode is sponsored by my free semi-weekly product manager meetup, which happens every other Friday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time. If you'd like to join, go to the sign-up page at secretsofpm.com slash meetup and get on the notification list, and I'll send you an email whenever we have one scheduled. I'd love to have you join. As I discussed in episode 136 about increasing your luck surface area, if you hang around with people who are positive and supportive and always looking out for one another and open to new experiences, then you are more likely to perceive the world as full of opportunities and to be able to take advantage of them. In other words, you'll have better luck. The meetup is a great opportunity for you to start surrounding yourself with those kinds of folks. It's a lot of fun. We talk about all kinds of topics, and we have a great time. Again, secretsofpm.com slash meetup. And if you're asking yourself, how can I improve my PM skills, my product management skills, and start having more impact in my work and my career, it might be time to talk to me about my 12-week coaching program, Product Manager Grad School. This is a personalized tutorial and coaching program where you will learn and apply the types of power skills that I talk about on the podcast, from storytelling and persuasion, to the minimum viable product knowledge that's critical for successful go-to-market, to the specific tools you need to crush your day-to-day challenges. I am 100% confident that this program will help you become a better, more confident, higher-impact product manager and transform your career. Worth checking out, right? So go to pmgradschool.com to sign up for a free consultation call. It's It's like a coaching session call, no obligation. But, of course, we'll talk about if you might want to work with me. That's pmgradschool.com. You can go right there, set up the set up the call, and it's free. Or check the show notes for all of these links and more, and there's going to be a lot of links in this episode at secretsofpm.com. Back to mental models. Mental models are like tools in your mental toolbox. We just established that. If you happen to be a homeowner or a woodworker, you know that to get anything done, you need the right tools. And having the wrong tools or tools that aren't quite up to the job is almost as bad as not having the right tools. 
You can't fix a sink if you don't have some plumbing tools. It doesn't matter what other tools you have. You need some tools that are related to plumbing in order to do plumbing work. But mental models have another role as well. They can help compensate for your own limitations. We all have limitations in the way we think, which mental models can help us address, so they can kind of be like a mental checklist, or like in what, what in woodworking we might call a jig or a fixture, something to hold the work or to help us deal with the work. And in fact, one whole class of mental models is basically to remind us about things we know we should do, but maybe we've forgotten, or things we normally don't think about, but know we should, checklist type of things, for example. In fact, you can really categorize mental models into different buckets, heuristics, cognitive laws, templates or checklists, categorizations and categorization strategies, and there's others as well. And there are, of course, a lot of mental models out in the world, hundreds if not thousands. Now, Munger says 80 to 90 important models will carry about 90% of the freight in making you a worldly wise person, as I said. So you don't have to learn a thousand, but you do need to get a good set of them. And it's just like if you are a homeowner, you know that there's a certain set of tools you need that will solve 90% of the problems that you are capable of doing. If you're a woodworker, it's probably a slightly bigger set to build, say, if you want to be able to build cabinets. You have to have probably 20 or 30 tools. You don't need to have a 1,000. But if you don't have those 20 or 30, you're probably not going to be that effective at building cabinets. And so that's the type of way I want you to think about mental models. You should build up a toolbox of them so that you can address a lot of the types of things that we are challenged with as product managers. For the rest of this episode, I'm going to talk about a lot of examples of mental models, both non-product oriented ones. There's some really powerful ones that we can still use on a daily basis, and then some product-oriented ones as well. So some of the general purpose mental models that are really useful for product managers, this is a short list that's taken from a really great list of mental models by Gabriel Weinberg, which I'll put a link to in the show notes at secretsofpm.com. The first one, cognitive bias, and all the particular cognitive biases that arise in different situations. So we all know that we often don't act rationally, we don't think rationally. It's just the way that our brains work for most of us. And in fact, a cognitive bias is defined as a tendency to think in certain ways that can lead to systematic deviations from a standard of rationality or good judgments, meaning our brains just don't work rationally a lot of the time in a lot of situations. And you can learn about these cognitive biases, and they're going to help you as a product manager both somewhat to recognize your own, although it's hard to see them on your own part, but also to see them on the part of your customers or maybe on, on your colleagues and know, and then learn how to deal with them. To, and once you have the model, you can start be, start to think about how can I deal with a situation where people's cognitive bias is tending to rise to the surface and causing them to make bad decisions, for example. Another great mental model is the idea of asking why five times. This is a way you get to the root cause of a problem. A problem occurs, you ask, why did that occur? And when somebody answers that question, you then say, well, why did that happen? And you keep going, why, 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 until you get to the root cause. It's related to the idea of arguing from first principles. And one of the things you're trying to get to when you ask five whys is understand the fundamental thing that, that caused the underlying problem or the underlying effect, whatever it might be. A first principle is a basic foundational self-evident proposition or assumption that cannot be deduced from any other proposition or assumption. That's the definition of a first principle, a definition of a first principle. And it's often very valuable to think from first principles, say, well, here's this thing that's happening, and I think I understand it, but let me go back to first principles to the underlying rules of the world and see if I can understand it 
in the context of that. And that often can give you really good insight. And it's a mental model, and it's an, but it's also a way of thinking. Another great mental model is the scientific method. Systematic observation, measurement, and experiment, and the formulation, testing, and modification of hypotheses. That also is something that we call lean startup. The book Lean Startup by Eric Ries is essentially about applying the scientific method to software development. So you're probably familiar with a lot of these and many more like them. Again, these are general purpose. There's a few more general purpose mental models, which I love, uh, which illustrate the potential range. So one of them is Hanlon's Razor. This is a great one. Um, very apropos, actually, for product managers to remember. Never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by carelessness. In other words, those people will just not push, click this button that will help them solve this problem. Well, it's not because they hate you. It's because there's, there's typically some other reason that they're not clicking that button. Even though they, pray, they may want to and they may want that outcome, but they may not know that they should. So we don't, we don't say they're terrible people. We don't say they hate me. We say, oh, there must be a reason somewhere. Let me figure out what that reason is and fix that. That's also going to back to this idea of first principles. Another great concept that I love, activation energy. That's defined as the minimum energy which must be available to a chemical system with potential reactants to result in a chemical reaction. So I don't know anything about chemistry. I don't do any chemistry at all in my life. Well, I do some cooking that has some chemistry in it. But I use this mental model as a metaphor for the difficulty users have in starting to use my product or for myself in starting to get going on a project or a task. There's an activation energy. Once I get over that activation energy, then things start to flow. But oftentimes there's a, it's a big effort to get started. You, you all have experienced that, I'm sure. So let's talk about mental models for product managers. There are quite a few about products and what makes products successful. Why are product management-related mental models different? Well, the mental models I'm going to talk about share two key characteristics. One of them is that they're about products. They really are sort of focused on products. But the other is that they're usually not used enough. We have a lot of great mental models in product management, but we, I don't think we do a great job of using them to help us make better products, or not everybody does. And I certainly know that I meet people all the time that are not using them. And while I think a lot of us have intuitive ideas about how to think about product management, my observation is that these mental models are not as widely used as they could or should be. And so that's why I recommend you start to put these guys into your toolbox. As you know, we have a lot of challenges as product managers. We have to do a lot of prioritization. We have to make decisions. We have a lot of communication with stakeholders everywhere. We have to do code switching all the time. And of course, we have to do a lot of persuasion. We can't order anybody to do things. We have to persuade them to do things. As you work with your team and with your colleagues, often you will build up a lot of influence, but you're really leading by influence. You're not leading through power. And a lot of that is based on persuasion. So it's likely that you deal with these issues every day with all of them. Prioritization, decision-making, communication, and persuasion. You're doing some of that every day. And good mental models can actually help with all of them. I'll describe a bunch of mental models as we go along. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if you haven't even heard of some of these, but if you've heard of them, you may not know how to use them, or you may not know that much about them. And I'll give you a little bit of insights on some of them. One could go much, much deeper on all of these models than I'm going to go in this episode, of course. So the first one, and I have talked about this on the episode, on the podcast before, is the value proposition. I think it's one of the more powerful mental models we have. I'm sure you've heard the term value proposition. It's easy to say, kind of rolls off the tongue. Yet in my experience, many product managers don't really know that a value proposition is a specific structure 
and that you need to know the structure and you need to fill in the structure. It's kind of a template. A properly constructed value proposition is really compelling to prospects and it provides important guidance to stakeholders and your team. It's fundamental to having a successful go-to-market process and sales funnel. But if you don't have the four specific components the structure of this structure, it's significantly less powerful. So what are the four components? Who the product is for, meaning the market or the market segment. What the product is, that's sort of the category, who its competition is, essentially, you can think of it that way. What the product does, its key features, and that is also, that goes really strongly along with the category. And then why my product is a better choice for you, the differentiators. You know, I always want to get to the point where I can talk to a prospect and say, I understand your situation enough because of the market you're in and the problems we've talked about in discovery that I can tell you confidently that my product is a better choice for you than all of your other alternatives, which might include other competitors. It might include doing nothing. It might include building their own solution. It's very important in the sales process for your sales team to understand those differentiators, of course, and actually to understand the whole thing because the sales team needs to know Am I talking to somebody who is the right person for this product? In other words, are they from the right market? Am I talking to the person that has the problem I have? That's actually related to the category or to the problem that I solve, and that's related to the category. Do they need the thing it, things it does? And am I describing the things it does correctly, right? Am I talking about its actual features or features that I made up? Unfortunately, salespeople sometimes make up features, and that can be a problem. And then I also want to be really clear if I'm selling – on why my solution is a better choice for the prospect than all their other alternatives. And that's all encompassed in the value proposition. The framework that I'm sharing here, it's the classic framework from Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm book. I've written about value propositions at greater length in an article called A Weak Value Proposition is a Symptom, Not a Disease, and I have a related podcast episode about that. I'll put all these links into the show notes so you can go refer to those. And basically, if you can't articulate the value proposition for your product, including those four components, you will have a hard time selling it, believe me. So the value proposition is a mental model in the form of a template. It gives you a structure for your thinking and for your research. And I love using good templates. We use a lot, templates a lot in product management. A user story is a very simple template. Not that I love you, the user story template as it usually is delivered, although I have a new version of that that I'll share soon in a podcast episode. A Jira issue is often created using a template. And in fact, most product management tools are essentially a database of items that are created by filling in templates. You know, even if your Jira story, even if there's no template for the text part of the Jira story, that there's kind of a template about, you know, who it was found, who reported it, you know, what its priority is and things like that. Those are all template types of things. But there are other types of mental models as well. Let's do some categorization of the mental models of product management to sort of manage the discussion. So one possible grouping is templates, which I've already talked about a little bit, and I'll give some more examples. Categorization tools, um, heuristics and algorithms, cognitive laws, and there's others. I'll give a few examples of each of these. So in templates, I've already talked about the value proposition. Another great one I love is the three laws of marketing physics. It basically says, if you want your product to have a good chance of success, it needs to have three things, and the three things essentially form the template. It has to have an overt benefit, meaning it has to do something that's overtly valuable for the prospect. It has to have a dramatic difference. This is the reason to buy your product instead of somebody else's, right? This is the thing where you say why this is a better choice than the other alternatives. And you have to have a real reason to believe. And that's often a customer story 
or some kind of a testimonial that shows the prospect that the claims that you're making about the product are true. And as I said, customer stories are a great way to do that. The idea comes from Doug Hall's book called Jumpstart Your Business Brain, but the book is excellent. I highly recommend it. I also have another template, which is what I call my valuable rubric for product requirements. The basic idea is that it includes things like, why is this product valuable? Why is it aligned with our corporate goals? How does it leverage our core competencies? Um, why will customers love it? Anyway, each of those letters, of course, stands for something. It's an acronym. The basic idea is that you can use it as a template for creating a, a set of requirements, or you can use it as a rubric for evaluating a set of requirements. It really plays two roles. But it's fundamentally a mental model. Just because you have a template, it doesn't mean your job is done, of course. Filling in the templates is often extremely difficult. You know, for example, articulating a meaningful dramatic difference or the differentiator portion of your value proposition is usually really difficult. And this is especially true, of course, if your product is really a solution looking for a problem. In that way, not only is the template a great way to talk about your product, if it is a really good product, it's also a way to find out that, oh, maybe my product does not actually have a chance to win in the market because I can't articulate the problem it solves or the reason it's a better choice. And that's those are warning signs. And so the value proposition, if you can't fill it out in a compelling way, that's a litmus test for whether your product is actually sellable. So moving on, categorization mental models. There's lots of models that are categorization mental models that are really applicable about product. Here's a few of my favorites. So one of them, stack ranking. This is the idea of stacking up the things you want to do, like features you want to build, with the most important ones at the top so that you can start working on the most important ones by just pulling something off the top of the stack. And its value rests on another critical mental model, which also underlines Agile. And this is the idea that focusing on the most important thing first is the best use of your time. And actually, that's fundamentally what the Agile mental model is all about. We're going to work on the most important thing first until we're done, and then we're going to ship that, and then we're going to start working on the next most important thing. I talk a little bit more about Agile a little later. Stack ranking is a kind of a one-dimensional structure. But there's a lot of examples of two-dimensional structures. These are the famous two-by-two -two structures that MBAs are famous for using. And there's a lot of good ones in the product space. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of these, at least one. One of them is the BCG, Boston Consulting Group, Growth Share Matrix. And basically what you do is you lay out the products that you're concerned about. That might be products in your own portfolio. It might be products that you're competing with, including yours your product and, and others that you're competing with. And the, the, the axes of the chart are the growth rate of that category that the product is in and the relative share of each product relative to the overall market. You may have a product that's the leader in a high growth market. That's obviously a great situation to have. You're going to make a lot of revenue really fast. You may have something that's a leader in a slow growth market. It's also known as a cash cow. So you can make a lot of money on that product, but you're not going to grow the business very fast. You can have something that's has a small share, but in a fast-growing market. And if you if it continues to grow, it can move into that first category, the star, where it where it's, gets a bigger share in a fast-growing market, and that's obviously a, a, a goal. And you can have a product that is in a slow-growing market and where it has a small share, and that's often called a dog. And those are often you want to divest from. If there are products in your, in your product portfolio, the quadrant in which each product lies, it gives you some insight into how you should invest or disinvest in that product. 
And if the products are your competitors, and, and you will put yourself in there as well, it gives you insight into how you should think about attacking the competitors and which ones are accessible to an attack. So that's the gross share matrix. Very powerful model. A little bit tricky to understand because of the way that it works. It turns out to kind of be nonlinear. But it's very powerful if you are, if you want to do an analysis of where your product lives in the context of other, other products in your space. Or if you have a big portfolio, it also helps you make decisions about that. Some of you probably have a big product portfolio, and you probably need to put your products onto a BCG matrix and see which ones are have potential for growth and which ones you should divest from. Big companies with lots of products have to do that all the time. Another example of a two-by-two two is it's a prioritization matrix. We used it in the old Accept360 product, the late lamented Accept360, but I've seen it other places as well. And the idea here is you lay out the features that you're considering building on a two by two where one axis is the value, the value to market or the value of the, of the feature, and one axis is the cost. And the basic idea is that it shows you the features whose cost is low relative to their value, meaning you should build those. And conversely, the features whose cost is high relative to their value, which you should not build. It turns out most features, generally speaking, the more valuable they are, the more expensive they are to build. It's not always true, but usually. So most features, it doesn't help you that much with, but it, but it can sometimes help you pop up features that you should really pay a lot of attention to and get building. Another well-known two-by-two mental model is the Gartner Magic Quadrant chart. And that lays out products or offerings based on their vision is one dimension, and their ability to execute is another dimension. And companies with an interesting vision and a high ability to execute are considered leaders. That's called the magic quadrant. And many enterprise software vendors spend a lot of effort trying to convince Gartner that their product should be in the leader quadrant or the magic quadrant in their reports. And so Gartner comes out with these reports every year or every other year for particular market segments, market domains, and vendors really want to get onto that chart and into the right place. Another two by two you've probably heard of is the Eisenhower matrix which is a helpful for prioritization. It's not really a product one, but it, it is useful for product people. The axes are urgency and importance. And so tasks in the important but not urgent quadrant are the where you should aim to spend most of your time. Tasks in the not important and not urgent quadrant should, of course, just be canceled or ignored. Another great two-by-two two is Tristan Cromer's Lean Startup Experiments chart. Now, this, this is very product-oriented. Its axes are generate research or evaluative experiment. That's one axis. And the other axis is market research or product validation. And so there's four quadrants, each of which has a number of different types of experiments in it. And so the way you would use it is lay, you might, you have a situation and you want to get some answers. So for example, maybe you have a product idea and you want to find out if there's a market for it. So you would look for experiments in the quadrant that's labeled evaluative experiment and market research. That's one of the quadrants, and there's a bunch of different experiments you can do. Whereas if you want to know if a new feature you've designed will work for your customers, you'd look for experiments in the evaluative experiment and product validation quadrant. In other words, those are experiments that are focused on validating a product idea. So as we've seen, all of these categorization tools are helpful for making decisions, for prioritizing features or portfolios or activities like research. They're useful for persuasion and communication. So that's the categorization category of mental models. Another category, heuristics and algorithms. Technically, heuristics and algorithms are steps to follow in specific situations. But often the steps involve reconceptualizing the situation, 
which puts them squarely in the province here of mental models. For example, there are some great heuristics in Chip and Dan Heath's book, Decisive, that can help us make better decisions. The book is a really great entertaining read. I've talked about it a lot on the podcast. But I'm going to touch on two of their mental models about decision-making just because they're relatively easy to understand, and I use them a lot. So one of them is this mental model that it doesn't matter whether you're whether a decision you're presented with is presented as yes-no or go-no-go. There's always more options. There's never just two options to a decision. You can always find more options than, than yes or no or go and no-go. This is a very powerful and freeing mental model. Because we're always being presented with those kinds of decisions. Are we going to do this or are we not? And the way to address that, if you're not really confident in saying either yes or no, is to step back and say, well, what, other, what are our other options? And there always are other options if you look for them. Another great mental model is this idea of the 10-10-10 rule. Think about how you're going to feel about this decision in 10 days, in 10 months, and in 10 years. And this rule helps you get out of the rut of taking hasty action that you might regret later. So I illustrated the use of this rule in an, an article that I wrote called Five Tips for When Your Release is Running Late. You know, you can do things like push to get it out on time, even if there might be quality problems. And that's going to make you and your execs happy for a few weeks or a few days. But it's going to haunt you next year when your customers stop renewing because of your history of low-quality releases. So if you use the 10 10 10 rule... 10 days, yeah, we're happy about pushing that release out. 10 months, we're unhappy because customers have, we're starting to really lose customers a lot. On the other hand, if you delay the release until the quality is better, that's a big downer today. Nobody's happy, everybody's depressed. And for a few weeks, that will continue. But in six months, no one will remember, and especially your customers will be thinking, I'm so glad that they release quality stuff even if it's not when they tell me it's going to be, but I'm much happier about its quality. And potentially six years, your company will be twice as big because all your customers renewed, citing very high quality releases every time. So you're looking there at the 10 days, 10 weeks, or 10 months, 10 years picture. In 10 days, you're unhappy. In 10 months, your customers are renewing. And in 10 years, the, the company's still going. So it's a really great way of getting the right kind of perspective on something. And, and you can use it as a mental model because really 10-10-10 is not the important thing. It's let me think about this, the short-term impact. Let me think about the medium-term impact. Let me think about the long-term impact of this decision. So I also, another set of things you can think about are the rules of thumb. I have a set of rules of thumb that I've written about and had to have some podcast episodes about. And these are sort of heuristics that represent sort of useful mental models like you should always try to make, if you're creating a new feature that creates a, a benefit for the customer, you should aim to have it be 10 times better than their current experience in some way. Now, it's not always going to be something like 10 times faster, but you should look for a, a factor of 10 improvement. This goes again back to that order of magnitude thing I talked about right at the very beginning. Amazon has a set of principles that define a heuristic for achieving success, some of which include number two, which is ownership. Um, number five, learn and be curious. I think that's very much like what Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger do. Actually, they spend all their spend most of their day reading and learning about new things. Um, number nine, bias for action, very product oriented thing. Number thirteen, disagree and commit. So after a certain amount of discussion, everybody has to commit to the direction, even if they don't agree on it. Um, there's eleven more of these principles as well. So metaphors are also a kind of heuristics, at least for this analysis and the concept of mental, mental models. My favorite metaphor for product management overall 
is restaurants. The kitchen is you. Actually, there's a lot of stuff that is where you are, where you show up. Uh, but the kitchen is you, product management, development, etc. This metaphor is really valuable for thinking about politeness. Um, there's 17 aspects of politeness that's that are exhibited by a good waiter. They should also be exhibited by your product. And these are listed out in The Inmates Are Running the Asylum by Alan Cooper, a great book. Again, look in the show notes for a link. I highly recommend reading this book, especially the section about politeness. I think it'll really open your mind and give you some great mental models for thinking about how can I make my product better? And what's interesting about these 17 aspects of politeness is that once you start to think about them and you think about your product in these contexts, at least I found this, it was really easy to see how I could make my product a lot better relatively easily by thinking about these ways that my product could be more polite. I was really impressed with that. Um, finally, understanding how humans think and make decisions is critical for product managers and anyone trying to persuade anyone of anything. And the cognitive laws and related cognitive biases are mental models that help us with that. So these mental models, they're really rooted in the way people really think and make decisions as opposed to how we, we think we think. We think we're rational, but we really aren't. Customers don't know what they want is a, is a great example. I always talk about that. In fact, I always say it a slightly different way. I say I don't believe anything a customer tells me. And this is really an agglomeration of the results of a lot of different cognitive biases and, that our customers have. Steve Jobs had a great quote. A lot of times people don't know what they want until you show it to them. Now, he didn't mean don't talk to your customers. He meant you should talk to them about their problems, not about what they want, because they don't know what they want, because they, they can't imagine it oftentimes. They don't, that's not their job to imagine what a great solution is. They'll come up with a solution, but it won't necessarily be great. But you really need to understand the problem that they're trying to solve because you and your team, presumably, are better at finding great solutions than the customer is. And so you need to understand the problem for sure, but you don't want to listen to the customer in terms of what they say you should do. Typically, they don't. their idea is not that good. Or certainly you want to validate that maybe, if, maybe it does happen to be good, but you want to validate that through your own work. Finally, um, I'll also talk a little bit about methodologies, which are, which are mental models about risk and knowledge. You know, every one of the methodologies that we use, like Agile and Scrum and Waterfall and Lean and many others, they're all an attempt to put a mental model around a process that happens irrespective of the methodology, which is people building things, often innovative things that have never been created before. And as an example, here's the mental model that I use for Agile. I mentioned it back a little while ago that I was going to talk about this more. This mental model kind of lifts it out of methodology land into mental model land. Fundamentally, in Agile, you make a list of the things you want to do. In other words, the features you want to build or the capabilities you want to deliver. You order that list by value, which is, again, importance to strategy or whatever your metric might be. And then you do the first thing on the list until it's done and you can deliver it. And then you go back to step one, which was make a list of the things you want to do. It might have changed over that time period. Order the list by value, in other words, importance of strategy, and then do the first thing on the list. That's the fundamental model of Agile. All of the Agile methodologies fundamentally give you some ways of thinking about doing that set of things. If you follow this mental model or any of those methodologies without letting the methodologies themselves get in the way, you're always working on the most important thing you could be. Anything that doesn't get done is by definition less important than the things that did get done. So it doesn't matter how fast you go. You're always working on the most important thing. 
This is the fastest way to deliver value. Now the problem is you can't necessarily predict what will get done, only that it will be valuable. And of course, people really want things to be predictable. Mental methodologies also themselves depend on mental models, like in Agile, that we can determine what's the most valuable thing to work on. That's actually a mental model that I, I can look at a list of things and say, this is the most important thing. That's very, very challenging, as you know. Waterfall methodologies have a different mental model, which is actually less likely to be true, that individual activities and projects can be estimated accurately so that it's possible to create a schedule that uses resources efficiently. Well, it turns out it's actually a lot easier, even though it's difficult, to predict the value of something that you might build than it is to predict how long it will take to build it. That's why most projects are late. Um, and most projects are under, particularly when they're run in a waterfall way, are under deliver on value because instead of focusing the order of activities based on value, which is fundamental to Agile, waterfall orders activities based on efficient use of resources. But because our estimates are always off, the idea that we've ordered the the order that we do things in it's not very good we don't we don't get to the end at the time we think we will and that often means that things that were more valuable aren't done because they were pushed later in the schedule due to efficiency fundamentally it's definitely easier to determine what's valuable than it is to get good estimates so i've only begun to touch on mental models for product managers in this episode most of these I've described with a few sentences and all of them, there's, pro there's literally books about all of these things that I've talked about. And I haven't even talked about some of the valuable larger frameworks of mental models, although I do have blog posts and, and podcasts about some, like Kathy Sierra's badass approach. And I haven't mentioned anti-models. Well, one, waterfall. <laughs> mental models that are actively dangerous for product managers despite their ubiquity. Uh, there's actually two that I think about a lot. One of them is waterfall, this idea that you can estimate things. That is just proven over and over again that you really can't, particularly in innovative things. You can't predict how long things are going to take to build if you've never built them before. That's fundamental. But the other one is this idea of if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. That is an incorrect mental model. It's not true. It's a bastardization of something Peter Drucker said. He actually meant it as a warning, not as guidance. And I have a podcast episode about that, of course, as well. But that is one of the, that is definitely an anti-mental model. It's a mental model that is actively bad for product and for the world. So a lot of things that, that could still be discussed in the whole world of mental models. But in the meantime, I want to make sure you have some actionable sort of concrete advice for making use of these ideas. And here's three things you can start doing today. You can start putting these mental models to use and work on your own library of mental models with these three actions. First of all, I... I'm going to harp on that value proposition again. If you don't have a value proposition articulated using the four-part framework, which is category, customer, benefits, and differentiators, then you need to do it. You'll learn a lot. It's hard, and you might find yourself struggling. That's a good sign. If you're struggling, imagine how your market is struggling to understand why they should buy your thing and how your sales team is struggling to figure out how they should sell the thing. So that's number one. Number two, if you can't do the... 10x thing for your product, get to work on that. Meaning, think, think about how your product is 10 times better than the customer's other alternatives. Again, it's also a hard thing. But luckily, in most cases, you can do the 10 factor of 10 against business as usual and not against your competitors. Although if you can do it against your competitors, that's amazingly powerful. Not only will you have, here's a, here's a little quote that I made up, 
not only will you have one-tenth the downtime, but you'll implement 10 times faster than with our competitors. We actually were able to claim that legitimately at a company that I worked for, NetIQ, back in the, in the 2000s. We were able to get our customers up and running, our prospects up and running, practically instantly, and our competitors would spend weeks trying to get it to do, happen. And it was a huge differentiator. Um, and then study up on mental models. This really means studying up on the ideas, ideas from different domains that focus on understanding how things work and how things can be improved. A really good list of mental models to start with, again, is the one that I mentioned earlier, Mental Models I Find Repeatedly Useful by Gabriel Weinberg. And I'll put a link in the show notes to that. So that's a long thing about mental models. Hope some, hopefully this is useful to you. Hopefully you can put some of this into to work immediately. This has been episode 152 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. If you feel like it, I'd love to hear your thoughts on mental models and your favorite ones, the things, the ones that maybe you use a lot. Um, I recommend, I mentioned a lot of different models and books and articles in this episode. You can find links to all of them in the show notes at secretsofpm.com slash 152. Don't forget the meetup. So you can go to secretsofpm.com slash meetup to get more information, to get on the sign-up list for that. And don't forget about Product Manager Grad School. Go to pmgradschool.com if that's of interest. We can have a conversation. You can see if it's something for you. Now, as always, I write the show notes to be a resource for you to take action on the ideas in the episode. So I hope you get a chance to visit. And I'll put all these links in there. You can drop a comment on the show page there if you have comments or complaints or about this episode or any other episode. I'm also on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm Nils Davis on both. I refuse to say X, by the way. Feel free to follow and or connect with me on either of those platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in your player of choice if you haven't already, and share the episode with your friends and or enemies, depending on how you felt about it. Until next time, this is Nels Davis. Bye-bye.